Hello and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and we are on episode 320. I have two absolutely wonderful guests here to talk about an amazing documentary that was made on Lee Kerslake, of course, most well-known being the drummer of Uriah Heep from London Bridge. We have Taylor Goodman. Taylor, how are you today? I'm really good, thank you. And thank you for inviting me here. Oh, my absolute pleasure. And of course, uh, the the hardest working man in show business, one of the kindest, my <sighs> dear friend, Steve Weltman. Steve, how are you? I'm good, Scott. Thank you. And by the way, it's London Bridge Films. London Bridge Films. Okay. My apologies, Taylor. That's uh, <coughs> okay. I, I have to start uh, by uh, telling the the story of, of how this came together originally. Um, when I decided to start Uriah Heap, the Magician's Podcast with Mick Box's blessing and endorsement, um, I was given Steve's information. He was managing Paul Newton, Ken Hensley, and of course, Lee Kerslake at the time. And um, it was the most unfortunate timing in history because I knew that Lee had been ill. And uh, so I, I remember when I when I wrote to you, Steve, I said, uh, I, I don't know Lee's current status. I know he hasn't been well. If he's not up to an interview, I would understand, but certainly would love to chat with all three of these gentlemen. And about two hours later, I started seeing the posts on social media that Lee had passed. And I felt I felt like a jerk because I, I mean, there's really no reason to. I didn't know what what state he was in at that time but it's still like in the middle of all of this now i'm bugging you here's some stranger coming out of the woodwork begging you for interviews and uh and, and your friend uh just passed and you were so great you wrote me um pretty quickly back and said uh, i don't know if you've seen it on the socials but lee just passed away give me a couple weeks on on the other interviews i'll get them done and i thought in the midst of dealing with all of that you have, I mean, aside from the emotion of losing your friend, but all the stuff that now has just fallen on your plate, I thought that was absolutely amazing. And then we unfortunately had to repeat that about a month later when Ken passed, because the day that Ken's interview came out was the day that he passed. I I have to applaud you for your incredible professionalism and communication. I. I would like to think I would have done the same thing, but that there was so much to deal with. And and I really appreciated and respected your your getting in contact with me on on both of those occasions. Thank you. They're lovely words. And and I think I'd like to think that any other human being would when they, you know, lose lose friends, first of all, uh, would do the same thing. Yeah. I, I would like to think that, but I don't know that that's the case. <laughs> Do not bring politicians into this discussion. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I avoid that as, as much as possible. Um, so I had the pleasure of watching this wonderful documentary, Lee Kerslake, Not on the Heap, just a few days ago. Um, incredibly touching. Um, how did this come together that you, Taylor, decided to do this documentary? And at what point did you actually start filming? Wow, okay. So <clears throat> it came together when I met Lee in Crystal Palace Park um, in London on a dog walk. And um, I had no idea who he was. And we just started chatting because we both got dogs and the, our dogs got on. My dog was being really naughty and thought his name was Cheese because that was the only way to get him back. And um, and yeah, Lee just started telling me about he want, you know, we were just talking about what each other's did. And he said he used to sing and and I said I make films. Um, and he told me that obviously he had cancer and really wanted to make a, a charity song and wanted to do a video. And did I know anybody that could help him? So I said, well, let me listen to it and I'll see if I can find someone to help. He said, if you've got any graduates, you know. So I took it home one Easter and I, I just fell in love with the music and um, I decided to storyboard it very quickly. And then I went back and I said, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do the music video for you. So we pulled in lots of people from that we knew around the park who had various businesses and things. And we shot the um, music video in a day and a half. Um wow. That was that was Cecilia Sienna mm -hmm. uh, on, on his obviously his, his album Eleventeen, and um, as as time was going on, he every time he performed, he felt a lot better. He seemed to get well, and I was always kind of hopeful that it would be his comeback and that he would get better and it 
the music would help him. And it did for a very long time. Um, and he, he did say that he really missed being on stage and wanted to make a comeback. Um, and he, he felt that there were things going against him. And I said, well, why don't we do, why don't we do a documentary on you and help you make that comeback? Um, and he said, what well, you do that? And I had no idea how I was going to do it at the time. <laughs> um, but generally, when I say something, I will do it 100%. Um, and yeah, so that was when we did his music video was um, around about, what, 2017, 2016? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so we started shooting, funnily enough, the first time we shot was in the Lee's favourite restaurant, the fish restaurant <laughs> in... Um, near London Bridge and we shot there Christmas of 2017 that was the first set of shots we did um and then from there the following February we went over to the Guinness factory to shoot Lee with Joe Elliott from Def Leppard so and mm -hmm. then it just all fell into place and of course you know to begin with I'm going to be quite honest I was unsure of what the story was going to be and I was struggling to find the bit that would really grip the audience and would do Lee proud um, and that's when Steve came to the rescue and we had many, many chats about um, the storyline and what angles we could take. And yeah, Steve, you know, has been on board ever since and been an absolute great help in steering the the way the story was, the thread was going to go, the narrative. Yeah, he's like Steve that. Interrupts that Steve. <laughs> Steve interrupts by saying, Taylor's being far too modest. Maybe I helped, but Taylor, it's her film. Well, and, I and when, he deserves enormous amount of credit mm -hmm. and, and a wonderful word that is rare, and that is her resilience. You know, yeah, I I felt that this was very much a work of passion. That it was Lee wanting to tell the story, but also you wanting to tell it. I I felt that unity in it. But one note that I had written down fairly early on watching the documentary was. I felt that the music, the process of of recording the album and, and that was very therapeutic to Lee, that it did seem like when he was working with the guitar player or, you know, working on a song, all of a sudden, like everything else just melted away. It was non-existent. He was very focused and and drawn into what he was doing. And I think as as music listeners, as creators, I think that's very true for a lot of people. Music really is a difference maker in our world. I mean, imagine a movie without songs. No, absolutely. absolutely. I, I, I think you, you make you make a lot of sense. You know, it's just, but I I think it applies. You know, probably to all the arts. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's a musician, a songwriter, and and or if it's a painter, a sculptor, if it's an author, a poet, that once they're immersed in their work, everything else is forgotten for that yeah. period of. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I'll be working in the studio and all of a sudden I'll look over and notice that the sun has been up for a while. And I thought it was maybe midnight, one o'clock. <laughs> you know, you just get lost. Sure you, yeah. 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 And you weren't in the casino. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I wasn't. <laughs> I, I'm curious, though. So 2017, were you working off of a demo version of Celia Sienna or had the final uh, version been recorded at that point? No, no, that was the demo version. It was, well, it wasn't even even the demo. It was, yeah, it was, hadn't even, well, actually, no, it had, hadn't it, Steve, actually? No, he did. No, it was the demo version we were working with, wasn't it, yeah. when we did Celia? Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was. And once right, you finished the video, you substituted the master. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I I love the uh, the camaraderie. I mean, especially because Lee and Mick Box were so close. I mean, the the brotherhood between them is immense, as as you can get from the interviews with Mick. Um, but I really think that that played out so much so in that video. I mean, you felt like these two were were almost joined at the hip. They were so close, and even though we're really watching a video, not hearing them talk you're seeing them together, you're seeing them interact and you just feel how close they are. How did you, was that something that just kind of happened? Was that something that you, you know, filmed a couple of takes to get that? How did that come out? You, you're referring to the music video? Yes, I'm yes. sorry. Yeah. 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 No, um, it was just natural. They were just, 
naturally funny together. Um, I mean, there, there were a couple of takes and obviously I was working to a storyboard that mm. I'd got, but they would they were just super funny. They just gelled. Everything they did worked. Mm. Um, and I was able to then cherry pick the best shots that they'd done. Um, but each time they did a take, it was better than the last and better than the last. It just got funnier and funnier. Um, mm. Yeah, they were, they're both two amazing people, but incredibly funny comedians too. Yeah. They, they made it, uh, they made the day go by really well. Yeah, I can imagine. Humour. Uh, yeah, yeah. Parents. Humour was a, a, a part of their existence. Mm -hmm. um, I recall a visit. Because um, I, I would go over to Lee's kind of every seven, ten days, the last kind of year and a half of what turned out to be the end of his life. And, um, and we'd sit and talk. And some, you know, there might be a bit of business. Of course, the... In 2020, discussing anything got harder because of all the medication he was on. I mean, you could be in conversation with him and then suddenly he'd go and he'd be asleep. Yeah. But um, Mick came over about 10 days um, before, as it turned out, Lee passed. And, um, and he hadn't seen him for a long time. Mm certainly not in 2020 so that was his first visit and uh so he bought with him um a half a bottle of Quantro uh and some uh mature manchego cheese uh and uh, and another cheese i can't remember what she was that lee loved and Lee then was in his bedroom and basically at that time couldn't um, literally stand up. Yeah. So Mick came in the bedroom and I luckily sat with them and, uh, and they just talked stories. Mm -hmm. And I was in tears half the time laughing because they, they were just hilarious. You know, I mean, you know, it's... I think I've mentioned this to Taylor before. I mean, you know, if only we'd have had a camera in that room, that could have been another film on its own. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I believe. Well, I mean, the history those two had, uh, all the years of touring and everything, pretty pretty amazing. Um, when uh, when you show it near the beginning, um, everybody in the current band of Uriah Heep comes and gives Lee a big hug in the wheelchair as they're about to take the stage and he's waiting for them to to get to Lady in Black. I, I could be mistaken, but it sounds like the the music that was being played in the house at the time was Black Sabbath playing Paranoid. I could kind of hear it a little bit through the door. And I thought, I don't know if that was intentional, but if not, that was pretty ironic of all the, the yeah, bands ironic. that could have been playing. Yeah, it wasn't it, intentional. It wasn't. No, it was just playing. Oh, wow. <laughs> that timing is fantastic. That's a great that's a great competition question. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> what that music is... is on the beginning of Lee's documentary? Right. <laughs> I I love I think, the I think what's important here, um Scott, is that you know what Taylor captured is basically as an advert in England says. You know, it says what it says on the tin. So by that, it it's, yes, it's about Lee's career. But it's also his battle mm -hmm. against his illness, yeah. against cancer, you know, which some people are still a bit shy about, you know, just discussing the, mm -hmm. the, the so-called C word. Right. And um, well, for me... Um, Personally, let alone professionally, I think what, what Taylor's captured and what all your listeners will absolutely get when they get, get, get this, this film is, one, yes, Lee, Lee's humour, but what an absolutely incredible human being. You know, just, I mean, I sadly have lost other friends 
to cancer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from when Lee was first diagnosed, um, which was about two years before Taylor started filming at the beginning, um, you know, I'd spent three years setting up a reunion show in Moscow for Ken and Lee with with the current Uriah Heap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'd rehearsed for a full week in, in the UK. It went really well. We flew out the following week and we're in a beautiful hotel uh, in the Four Seasons. And sound check day, fine, done. Day of the show, Lee couldn't get out of bed. His back had gone. Oh, okay, got osteopaths in all the, and he, you know, he he made it, but you know he he started to suffer there, but he you wouldn't have known it, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have, he just got on with it, and it, it, how, you know, Taylor's captured both sides, the medical side, mm-hmm. which if you like is the sadder side, and then the joy, which is the music side, brought it all together, and it's a documentary. It's fantastic. I agree. There, there's a serious balance that, that you captured between the two, and I think there's that that moment where Lee does kind of have to deal with his mortality a little bit, but he didn't he didn't seem to be because there's two kinds of people, right? There's the people that will go, Oh, my life is over right now because I just found out. And even though I've been given a two year clock, it's over, it's over, it's done. And and there are people that were, will fold and cave and will die quickly because they just have accepted it. And then there's people like Lee who says, I have something I want to do with the time that I have left. And I'm going to give it everything that I've got to make it happen. And I love that you captured both sides of it because in the middle of all this, yes, he's still dealing with the physical difficulties and challenges of of his declining health, but he's also still got that passion. You can see how much he misses being on stage. You could see in the beginning when he gets up out of his wheelchair and closes the door after being greeted by all the members of the current Uriah Heap band, you can see how hard it is for him not to have just walked out there on stage with them where he belonged. And you feel that. I mean, you you can't watch that and not, not feel like you're inside his body needing to go out there. And that was an amazing moment. Absolutely amazing. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but when he does go out to play Lady in Black, uh, there's a beautiful moment that you captured in the bottom right of the screen as you're shooting out to the crowd. There's this woman who just covers her eyes. She's so overwrought with emotion of seeing Lee come out on stage. One of the most beautiful moments in the documentary. And that might've been just a by chance capture, but when you point the camera, those are the moments you can get. Absolutely. I mean, in, in all fairness on that particular day, I did have five cameras so I had them up in the guards, down in the pits, facing the audience, facing the stage. We had some GoPros as well. I was absolutely adamant because this was part of his bucket list yeah. um, to get back up on, on stage with Heat one more time. Mm-hmm. So I was not going to miss one element. And the way that Mickey and Ace Trump had set it up um, was to not let the audience know. <clears throat> and, you know, at the end, bring him on. And so it was a shock to the audience. So we kind of knew we were going to capture, you know, people not expecting him to be there and being completely overwhelmed by his presence on stage. And boy, did he rock that stage. He absolutely rocked it. And going back to what you said earlier on about music being a therapy, you would not know for one minute while he was on that stage that he was sick. It was only when yeah. he comes off the stage that you realise wow, he might have overdone it a little bit, you know, um, but that's when you really know. But all the time he was on the stage, you would just never have known that that man had cancer and that he hadn't yeah. got long to live. You just wouldn't know. Well, and, and the adrenaline rush that you get from going out and performing is immense, you know, but to 
to reunite with your best friend and to get up there and, and do what you've been wanting to do for a long. I mean, I can't imagine, I, I would have found it difficult to play. I mean, you'd find the gear to do it, but I think standing next to Mick, being on stage, looking at those people watching you and just being so amazed that you came out and, and no one knew you were going to be there. I can't imagine the emotional side of that for Lee, what that felt like. You know, I, I would think that would be pretty amazing. With the film, I think that, you know, we've touched on, you know, the medical side, we're, we're talking a little without giving too much away about um, uh, his, well, his, his oxygen was his music. Yeah. Uh, but I think that, you know, obviously, certainly all the Uriah Heat fans, young and old, know of Lee and some others and the rock world knows about Lee the drummer mm -hmm. what they're going to find out in the film is from if you like his peers was how important his vocals were yes and and uh and shit I he plays the piano as well I won't mm -hmm. say which artist says that? <laughs> but I'm sure you both realise what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, when it comes to somebody's home, you know. And, and that's the other. Thing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think that you know it, it's um, you know when you you know it's public knowledge that Lee in the early days that he I wasn't around, nor was Taylor, and. But he, you know, he had no relationship with their original manager, Jerry Brown. Mm -hmm. He didn't like him at all. Yeah. Um, and you, you'd have thought that as that band was developing, because, I mean, not as Lee joined, they'd started to make a, a noise with the first two albums. Mm -hmm. When you, when you, when you get to you know, Demons and Wizards, Magician's Birthday, you know, it catapulted them. Oh, yeah. And if you were the manager at the time and, you know, you, you already had Hensley about to make a, a first solo record. Mm. Why did Jerry Bron never give Lee that opportunity? Right. Because he can sing, he can play, he can write, you know. And uh, so, but again, the film shows not just the drummer, the human being, the drummer, plus these other talents. Well, and I and I think a lot of times drummers aren't taken seriously as creative musicians. They're taken as somebody who can hit things very well. But yes. when it comes to writing songs, even the bands will be, you know, the drummer will come and say, hey, I wrote a song. Here's the lyrics. Let's work on it. And the band's like, oh, great. Drummer wrote a song. Anyway, what are we going to work on? Today? Yeah. You know? And, and they're so not. True. Yeah. And, and so I think a lot of times, too, when drummers put out albums and I think about like Cozy Powell putting out uh, Tilt, it's expected that it's going to be a heavy percussion album and it's not going to be a good collection of songs. It's going to be drum driven. And I don't think that Eleven Teen was at all drum driven. It was a very vocal, very melodic, uh, mm -hmm. very passionate album. I I love it from start to finish. I think it's a fantastic album. And Taylor, I, I love that you were able to capture some of the making of this album, working on the songs, putting it together. What you went through, Steve, trying to make this happen on the the you know the business side of it. Um, let me ask you first, Taylor, was it, did you feel like you, you, like it might be difficult for him to be creative and really work on the songs while he was being filmed working on the songs? Or was he just like, okay, you're in the room, whatever, I'm working. <laughs> the latter, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <I had> <laughs> Lee, Lee was in his element. <clears throat> he played to the camera very well. He loved it being there. He was, he's a true pro, you know, definitely. Um, it didn't matter who was in the room, what was in the room. He was still incredibly creative. Um, and there, there's some great points where he pulled some funny faces when when Jakey, the guitarist, got a few chords wrong. I love that. <laughs> He'd be like, what was that? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so no, he's he had a, a great musical ear, amazing musical ear. Um, and he picked one everything. So no, he was he was great. We were we were kind of like the three musketeers, Jake, Lee, and I, because we were traveling around all the time filming. Um, and every day was just different and funny. Uh, and yeah, he was just he was super, super creative and gave some great tips out to the music that was being played and how it should be played. Mm-hmm. And he would just create a chord literally there and then. You know, I, I remember when we were we were filming his little birthday party without giving too much away. He just started singing some music and adding bits to it. He he would just pick up a key. He picked up my daughter's keyboard, funnily enough, at one point, and he just started playing away on it and started singing lyrics, making tunes up just immediately. So no, it didn't matter where he was or who was looking at him. Creative Street never went. Yeah. Never. And and I feel too that um, he he did this album uncompromised. He he made the album he wanted to make and didn't say, well, I can't do this. This isn't going to be able to happen. I, I really feel like he captured what he wanted to capture. Would you say that's the case? Me? Is that to me? To both of you, yeah. We'll start with you, Steve. Oh, yeah, I'll let you answer that one. I think that's more a question for me than Taylor. With mm-hmm. great respect, Taylor. Um, it's difficult to 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 really... Uh, I think that what you and Taylor started to talk about earlier was, uh, uh, was that this was therapy for Lee. So... When he met Taylor, and and you have her description when they're in the park, and then she heard a demo of Celia Sienna, so she took it on board and came up the idea of, oh, let's make a film. Mm-hmm. So there, there were other songs that he, he demoed and played to me, but I didn't think they were good enough. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I understood them, and I was much gentler with him than I was just now, okay? (laughs) Um, Because I realised, literally, um, just before we started the rehearsals with Ken and Uriah Heap in 2015, I, I, I knew his diagnosis. And we'd had a long conversation a couple of days before we went to the rehearsals of his home. And, you know, Lee's attitude was, sorry, you know, I'm going to beat this, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And but that was Lee. That's not just everybody. That's, and Lee was 100% committed to that, which is why he actually lived so long. Mm. But he started talking about writing. Um, and you could just see it was almost like his brain was open and you could read his mind mm-hmm. and it was saying, this is going to help me along the way. Yeah. And, and so, um, once it, uh, once it romanced Taylor <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it got a film director on board, um, he knew he had to write more, um, and he had uh, Jake, who plays guitar on the record, was a huge help for him, mm-hmm. a young man, and um, and he could bounce ideas off with Jake, and and some days he'd come home, you know, and I'd be there from the, when he come home from the studio, and uh, he'd be like, oh bloody hell, this is not. I don't like this. What do you think of this, Steve? And I go, oh, I don't like the chorus. Yeah, I was thinking that myself. Mm-hmm. And then the following, I go back and he'd rewritten the chorus already. Oh. Hope, you know, and he said, oh, do you like this? Said, yeah. And um, <laughs> and first of all, he, I can't say it was immediate. And, and I can't say when it was, just after... Taylor started filming because uh, originally we were going to do a, a charity show. There's a very famous club in London, Scott, still there called the Hundred Club. Okay, you can Google it when you see everybody that's played there. 
Mm. It's as famous as the marquee. Okay. And um, so we had a date, didn't we, Taylor? We were gonna yes, we had meetings yeah. at Taylor's home and uh got various people involved and uh other acts all set and then he he had a a down you know the, the illness grabbed him so we had to pos well postpone it cancel it in the end yeah uh, but writing i would say was equally as important to Lee as actually recording and actually making a record for release. Yeah. Because I think, you know, it's what, again, Taylor said earlier. Once he was, you know, in the studio, whether she, she had 20 cameras there or one, when he was focused, he was focused. Mm -hmm. And I think that the writing, because after Eleven Team was finished, although it wasn't going to come out until the following year, which he knew, mm. I mean, he could not pick up sticks. Wow. Okay. I mean, beginning of 2020, he asked me to get him a state-of-the-art Yamaha electric kit which he could put in his bedroom. Mm -hmm. Again, therapy, so he could play. Right. I uh, bought that from Dr Graham Russell Drums, the biggest drum shop uh, wholesaler in Britain. Mm -hmm. And it's actually about 25 minutes from where I live. Oh. And and so I went down and spoke to Graham, said, look, this is for Lee, because these things, thousands and thousands of pounds. So... Mm -hmm. He told me the you know what he could do for Lee, so basically almost gave it to him as a cost. Wow! And I took it to Lee's, and six weeks later, Lee said to me, "Do you think you could speak to Graham and see if he'll buy it back?" Really? Oh, yeah. Well, so, and, and playing an electronic kit is, is really different because the, the heads are very is. bouncy and they're harder yeah. to play in some, you can cheat a lot if you're not a good drummer, but they're in some ways harder to play for people that are used to playing the normal Mylar heads because they're way too bouncy. They're almost uncomfortable at times. Yeah, yeah but you're, you're talking about, I mean, you know, in terms of Lee playing anything with yeah. sticks, you're talking, I mean, again, I'm not giving it away. Watch the documentary, folks, mm -hmm. because you'll see something in a blink that Lee did that we filmed, Taylor filmed, at a certain place. And he just took to it like duck to water. Mm -hmm. But what was important was as much as, and I would hasten to add for Graham Russell's sake, that he, he gave me the exact amount of money that Lee paid for it. Gave oh, it all wow. back. Very nice. Very Absolute. nice. Absolutely. Um, respect for Lee, not me. Right. And, and, but it didn't stop Lee writing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, well, I, he had a little keyboard at home and we'd talk about it. And, and you know, so he kept, kept trying. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that you know, we then uh, came up with, um, I started to work on a running order. Now, that is something I should have phoned you, actually, Taylor. <laughs> oh, man. I said, so just set up a GoPro in his lounge. Every week I go over and we go through the running order, and it's never right. You know, it's <laughs> never right. It probably took two months to, to agree. Because um, the, with the running order, there's, of course, the artistic, the creator's opinion. And then you've got to think about the media's opinion and the public's. Right. Um, but when we finally came up with what turned out to be the last, the last one, I, th I don't know, I think we were both relieved. And Sue, his, his, his wife, I don't 
believe you two have finally agreed on this. Let's open a bottle and have a drink. <laughs> well, and, and there are some really wonderful guests that you were able to get. The, the one thing I've always felt about Lee was that I, I've never seen a lot of press on him. Uh, of course, I live in America, so they, you know, we don't get as much of that over here when it comes to European bands. But um, I've never heard of other drummers talking about Lee or other bands talking about Lee that much. So to have guests like, you know, Joe Elliott from Def Leppard, uh, Ian Pace from Deep Purple, who was the drummer, was much like Lee, one of the two drummers that I grew up listening to the most. And uh, in fact, I'm still hoping I get a chance to talk to Ian Pace about the food fights that Ken Hensley was telling me about from back in yes. the day. Uh, yes. But um, the the one that surprised me most, and I, I don't want to give away too much, but was the moment that Lee was sitting with Kiss, because I didn't. I wouldn't have never imagined the influence that Lee as a singer and as a drummer had on that band and watching them talk to him with such admiration, especially Gene Simmons, because Gene Simmons can tend to be very cold and make you feel like everyone's beneath him. And I, and I don't mean that in a mean way. That's just how he comes across. He's very, very cold and direct. Um, but I really felt something different coming from him when he was speaking with Lee. That was a very magical moment. What was it like to to be in the room filming that? Well, I mean, I've not grown up in that era. And as I said, when I met Lee, I didn't even know who he was, even when I'd agreed to do his music video. And, and he mentioned, oh, we'll get Mickey involved. And I'm like, well, who's Mickey? So I, I really don't know. You know, I didn't know these people. But I have to say, Gene, Paul, Eric and Tommy were adorable they were the nicest bunch of guys you could ever meet ever gene was funny in a dry humor sort of way he was really really funny mm. paul was just incredibly inspirational and left lee feeling really on top of the world and he talked about excerpts from his book and you know you should you shouldn't live on sort of like what ifs and buts go out and and get it so he was yeah. incredibly inspirational and and Eric sat there in awe of him, uh, talking about you know how he moved wind with his sticks, and yeah, it was it was lovely. They were they were wonderful. They'd sorted out the room for us to film in, absolutely everything. They'd organised the lot for us, um, and I know that you know they had supported Uriah Heap at one point, and then Uriah Heap had supported them, and so yeah. they you know they did have a lot of time together, you know, in the past, and. For Lee, it was it meant so much because part of his bucket list was to meet up with his old friends one last time. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was a really big key moment for him. And they invited us to come and watch their concert. And um, yeah, we went, you know, it, it was wonderful. It was it was a wonderful, wonderful moment to see Lee so happy. Mm -hmm. And all the comments that they made about him, he was just beaming from ear to ear and and he was like what you you took that from me and you got that inspiration from me. it was yeah, it was amazing it was incredible to film incredible to watch i i can compare that to a, an interesting moment where metallica was being interviewed and i don't remember who was doing the interview but uh they had elton john on uh from satellite and he was saying that there was a song that james hetfield wrote that elton john felt was one of the best songs ever and I watched James Hetfield just melt and fall apart at that. I mean, how how do you take bands that are like some of the biggest bands in history and know that you've done something that affected them in a positive way? You were a part of their success and not just be completely overcome with emotion. How do you not walk out of that just kind of floating through the door? I think it's... I think Actually, um, although this is an instinct, instinctual answer to, to, to your question, I actually just think it's common sense. Because it's like when you go to school, college, university, and there's a particular teacher that you connect with, mm -hmm. you know, and you submit your exam papers and you get an A plus or a whatever it is these days, you just feel like the acknowledgement 
from that person is just amazing. Yeah. It could be in sport, you know, with a coach and you do what the coach told you and you come off and it's just like, oh, you were great. You were great. And I think that musicians and particularly uh, with no disrespect to younger musicians today at all, uh, who I still work with, as you know, Scott, mm-hmm. um, that um, there was a camaraderie and a respect that started a long time ago that will never wane. Mm-hmm. It just continues. Yeah. And and, and again, in, in those days, you know, touring you might have had two three bands on the same bus mm-hmm. and it's like oh fred do you want to come and play on my album next week what are you doing yeah that's why you've got old albums that have got like so many different guests on you don't get that anymore no you know what it, it's it's interesting that you say that because i i was telling somebody not too long ago Back in the old days, if you take, uh, if you're familiar with Laura Ingalls and the Little House on the Prairie show that that we had here in the States, um, you, if if Laura's house burned down tonight, tomorrow morning, 95% of the people would be out there chopping down trees, building her a new house. Nowadays, you can't get somebody to help you move a couch without buying them dinner. You know, it's it's a different world, and I and, and I find it's very much the same with musicians. It used to be, yeah, I'll play on your thing. Oh, maybe you know you'll do something with me one of these days. And and there was that just genuine give and take. And nowadays, it's well, you know, I'll have to talk to my manager and get my record company to approve this because you know I'm signed on this label and you're on that label, and I might not be able to be on your thing. It's so political and so legal. And I feel like we've lost a lot of that camaraderie with the way that that things have gone in the business. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think that um, certainly one of the uh, big stumbling blocks is recording contracts Mm -hmm. that prohibit artists from appearing on other musicians, you know, appearing on other records because they're so restricted yeah. in, in in their contractual uh, arrangements. But I want to come come back to something a bit more positive. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, one of the things also with Lee was, uh, you know, I, I finally got him to download Spotify about yeah. 2018. And and explain how it worked because he wasn't his hands were getting very big and also he you know a bit of a tech dinosaur so uh unless he was in the studio of course sure and so he realized you know the way i described it i said look you got spotify you got the biggest record shop in the world in your pocket mm-hmm. so you know i'd walk in one day and he'd say, oh, Steve, I just found this old Hiss song. And he'd play it. And then he'd say, oh, and I just found this, you know, this band, uh, Taylor and the Goodmans. Have a listen to this. It's, it says it's brand new. They're like kids. And so, you know, I'd listen to it. And he was always wanting me to find, when I went over, now and then, not all the time, playing something of a young band. So I played him a bit of our propaganda. Mm -hmm. So jump forward to his electronic drum kit, beginning of 20, and it's going back in February, end of February, that in 2020. But he'd ordered online, which had been delivered, a fabulous new drum stall for the kit. And I said, I don't know if Graham will buy it, I can ask him. He said, no, no. He said, uh, I know what I'll do. So I took his drum kit back and a few days later I went back and uh, and he said, oh, here's the drum store. And he gave it to me, signed it to Charlie in our propaganda. And Charlie's nickname in the band is Little Lee. 
Oh, that's awesome. I love yeah. that. And, and he's a very good drummer. Oh, he is. I and really like that band. He's, he's a student. Mm -hmm. I tell you this, I mean, all right, Charlie's not a baby, baby. I mean, he's all of, what, 24. <laughs> but um, <laughs> when, when Taylor Hawkins died, Charlie, it was like his brother. Mm -hmm. I mean, the kid was devastated. Yeah. Devastated. He was one of the first people that bought tickets for the tribute shows in London. Mm. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a student. Yeah, I, I'm very, uh, very anxious to see where where their career goes. Uh, they're a great band. I talk to Jack all the time. And uh, I really yes, I, he told me. Yeah, as as musicians, I really really like their their music. You know, um, Taylor, their new, I, their new songs are going really really well. Yeah, he anyway, told me they're working on some new stuff. Um, Taylor, I wanted to ask you. I I don't want to give away the reveal. I'm sure you're going to know what I'm talking about. But there's a moment where I think is a is a very historical moment that you captured in this documentary where something arrives at Lee's house. Um, I'm incredibly grateful that you captured that because I think that was a very beautiful moment um, without giving away what it is, because I, I want people to enjoy this as it unfolds. Uh, I have to ask you as, as a person who's focused on, okay, we've got to get the shots, we've got to make sure the audio is good, all these things that you're dealing with as a filmmaker, but you're also being caught up because Lee's your friend now and you're happy that this is happening to your friend how how is it how do you divide those two elements of being a human being and being that you're working a job that's very important to capture this right the first time well funny you say that <laughs> there were some moments um <clears throat> i think for me because of the type of documentaries i make i'm only really interested in human interest stories so i'm always driven by compassion and and the right side so at the end of the day, I will not go for a shot if it's going to harm the person in it in any way or put them down. So person first and the shots will come. So that's how it always was with me. There was one time when we were actually, and I'll come back to the shot you're talking about, but um, or to, to the variety of shots, where he fell over in um, on his birthday party and it was very, very difficult to get him up. And obviously... <clears throat> The first thing I did was put the camera down and help like with everybody else to get him back up. I could have shot that. I could have convinced Lee that that should have been in there, but that is not what the documentary was about because he's such an inspiration. It's yeah. not a sad documentary. It is just because of what's happening to him. So mm -hmm. we didn't need to put those areas in. We didn't need to, to show any of that. And it's not, it's not human to, you know, to always show those areas and the film did not warrant it. Mm -hmm. So Going back to this very special moment that, um, you know, we're, with Steve's help and, and how it was going to work out, um, wasn't quite sure how I was going to film it, but I am a, an observational doc maker. So I'm literally follow people around with a camera and just get whatever I can, never to turn the camera off because they're the, always the best. As soon as you turn the camera off, you get the best shots. People right. say the best. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, For sure, yeah. Which, People always say, are you recording? Because I keep my light off. I go, no, I'm not recording. And I'll put it down and it's still recording. Um, but, but no, that was a very special moment um, to capture that incredibly special. And it captured the raw emotion of how he felt when that happened. Um, yeah, and it was, and, and that's the bit that moves me quite a bit. Well, one of the bits that really moves me is when I see that and uh, I see his little hand punch in the air. Um, and that, yeah, for me, it's um, it was great to capture that. Really great to capture it. But I was, I literally rarely took the camera off my shoulder. If I'm going to be quite honest, it was, yeah. I've grown muscles. <laughs> I didn't have them before. <laughs> I would also like to say um, that for Taylor, that your question, Scott, about, you know, how do you film something like that? Mm. It's really no different to Taylor's description of filming Lee in the studio. 
In in other words, when she's got the camera, she's got her creative hat on. Right. So she's looking to get everything in her case mm -hmm. that she can. It's when she sits down to look at all of it is when her humanity comes in. So yeah, so, so it's like you, you separate you separate that you're I'm, yeah. I'm on a job I have to do this and I can compartmentalize and deal with that in in the next phase yeah because if yeah. you're shooting all what we're talking about which is very emotional yeah. and she's got a lot of footage and then she's got to whittle that footage down to x amount of time mm -hmm. she's going to choose what's best and that's where her her humanity comes into it and in this case lee gets the benefit of the humanity oh yeah and, and i will agree with you taylor i i think that you didn't need to show a lot of the uh rougher moments but i think you gave us enough to understand where he was at without having to overplay it whereas i feel like a lot of people would have made this a documentary about a guy who was in the last months of his life trying mm -hmm. to get something done your documentary was about somebody trying to get something done in the last moments of their life. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's be honest. I mean, if we could have titled this in a more humane world, well, if I'd have had my way, I'd have called it Lee Kersley, a human being. And a drummer. <laughs> and a songwriter. <laughs> and, right. <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. it, it, it's, that's to me, is and it, it's got nothing to do, well, I suppose it has, because I knew him, but it's a beautiful film. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it really, it's a, it's a beautiful, yes, I'm involved and people think, oh, you're only saying that, but it's just a fact. You know, I challenge anybody, watch it and you'll see. Yeah, if, if you're not feeling something while you're watching this, you don't have a soul. That's, that's where I stand on it, you know? Um, I, I want to... I, I think too that it's also a great documentary or or it's not a documentary about making Eleventeen, but it does capture a lot of the development of it. And so if this if he had done a documentary on it, a lot of this footage would have been perfect for like a behind the scenes or you know, we're doing oh. a DVD with the CD. Um, because I love seeing developmental processes with artists. I love seeing how songs come together. I love seeing how they think and how they feel music because we all do it differently. So you did a great job capturing that. Um, but Steve, I wanted to ask you, I was thinking about this while I was watching it. Um, you worked very hard to find a record company to put this through, to, to do the release. Why wouldn't a self-release, not do an album, maybe not do a vinyl, but do a small run of CDs that you could crowdfund um, and then just release it on his own through DistroKid or, you know, that'll that'll send it out to Spotify and all the places. Um, what was the importance of doing it through a record company? Because it's what he wanted. I gave him my word, no matter how long it took, I would get a record deal for him. And I'm a man of my word. And you came through and you, you absolutely did. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, um, people laugh about it, you know, to a point now, but, you know, Lee asked me if, if when he went that he said, you know, will I stay in touch with Sue, his wife? Mm -hmm. So I, I go and see Sue every 10 days, two weeks, I go and spend the afternoon with her. And we've become, well, we became friends probably particularly in the last two years of Lee's life. Sure. We became very close. Mm -hmm. And and that friendship has, has grown um, because, you know, and she, you know, she's also been handled this with, with great integrity. Mm -hmm. You know, she always kept a low profile from his career. But this whole, I'm sure Taylor would agree, she's she's been amazing. They both were. Bearing in mind, you know, she became a 24-7 carer yeah. for the last 18 months of his life, maybe mm -hmm. two years. Yeah. 
and, so, and, and the emotional yeah, no, side I, for her. Lee, want, Lee wanted that, you know, the, the old artist thing. You know, the, I want to be, I want a record deal. I want to yeah. publish. Yeah, and um, and it wasn't easy. Yeah, you know. Well, well of course, the album came well, out after how, he passed. How, you know, it's always oh, Lee Kerr's like, right? Yeah. A 70, 72 year old drummer looking for a record deal has never made a record in his life. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> well, yeah, and and you know, there's there's always the the talk in the Uriah Heap forums about the uh, the missing magical album that never got released. Is it going to get released? And and I'm, I'm like, you know, there's so much that goes into that. You have to That's secure. A myth, by the way. Oh, that is a myth. How so? What is it? Ten miles or something. 10 miles high is the uh yeah, the yeah, no, title. yeah. it doesn't exist i've heard well i've heard tracks well, that were there, there, di- there a previous very dodgy dodgy oh thing yeah um, and but i don't want to talk about that now okay. <laughs> well I, I was just to, to do the, another you know, one separately I, I was just saying to the to the point related to this of there's so much that goes into these negotiations and you know what you have to secure and and all of that that getting a record deal these days um is, is a lot different i imagine than it would have been if this was 1972 or 1973 oh. you know yeah people i mean seriously i mean i, I mean i you know i will you know, plug as they used to say the record label and Cherry Red were absolutely fantastic, helping us get this together, um, and and, um, and understanding both the record and you know because you know well Taylor filmed it <laughs> right <laughs> you can now- see it. Now the album you know. didn't come out until after he passed. Did he get That's to right. see the, that, the it, final artwork? But Lee, Lee knew that. Yeah. You yeah. know, because we couldn't get it out until 21. Sure. Because of the backlog and the weight we had for vinyl. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Well, and because the, the there's only a couple of places really that print vinyl anyway and so so many bands were recording during the pandemic and the backlog was getting pretty pretty insane in in 20 in 2020 once you had finished everything with a record it was a year to get vinyl Mm -hmm. did he he get to see the final artwork though the 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 booklet and all that oh he did okay good yes and he loved it yeah because Hugh um, did it, um, Hugh Gilmore um, uh, d- did that uh, for me, and I've known he's a designer I've known for a, a long, long time, mm-hmm. and, and a huge fan of Lee's Heap and and Rock itself, and and he understood, uh, and 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 you know he he did a great job, great yeah. job. With that. Yeah, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And so is the album. I mean, it's just a very passionate. Um, I, I love it, like I said, from... from but isn't it great? Out. I mean, yeah. if people are listening to your podcast that haven't heard the album, it's the documentary. Mm-hmm. Because you'll have the serious, you'll have the fun, mm-hmm. yeah, Port and Brandy, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And I will have the links uh, where you can get the album in the show notes and also right. the documentary as, as well, because I definitely want you guys to to go and check it out. It's it's so beautifully done. <laughs> Taylor, I don't I don't know if there's anything that I could say. You could have done better or you, this should have been in there and that shouldn't. I think it's perfect from beginning to end. It is a great, sto- well-told story. It's a, an emotional journey. I really feel like watching that, I feel like I was with Lee through this and to be able to create that, to be able to put me there with you guys who I've never met was pretty magical. Thank you so much for that. Um, what was really important was to for the fans to get to know Lee in his home and to invite them into his home and get up close and personal even to the point where we were showing how to do the Lee Kerslake shuffle. And I won't give too much away, 
but obviously there is a toilet shot in there. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it tells the story, um, but it also fits in with Lee's humour. So the more I got to know Lee over the years, the more I knew what would work and what wouldn't work. Um, but yeah, it was very important to invite people in to find out who he really was. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, I, as, as a drummer myself, uh, did a video a couple of years ago to explain the double shuffle to people because he does that on so many songs. And as I was covering every song with the Uriah Heat podcast, I thought, you know, I'm talking about this all the time, but I think people need a visual. So here I sit down behind my electronic drum kit and I'm doing it and I'm like, God, this is hard. And I'm mm -hmm. playing it at a tenth of the speed that he's playing a song like Return to Fantasy. And I'm mm -hmm. like, man, he really nailed this style of of playing and of course then like two weeks later russell gilbrook comes out with a video that just blew mine out of the water i'm like i'm just gonna delete mine nobody needs to see this well i i think going back no disrespect to your video but i think and i will give this away to a point but there's a clip we have of ken talking about lee in july morning in the documentary so anybody listening to this go watch that clip listen to what ken says mm -hmm. about lee as a drummer because don't get better than that yeah i, I that think that song so that awesome. song i have heard live all over this planet and i would say that song is more important to mostly right heat fans than lady in black I would agree with that. It's their anthem. Mm -hmm. and, and and sadly, he wasn't on the original recording, but his his versions of it playing it live that I've heard have just been and and it, and what I'll Ken stand. said. Yeah, and what Ken said. Yeah, <laughs> I, I couldn't say it better than he did. So I'll shut exactly. up. Uh, but don't feel bad. Like if you wanted to disrespect my video, I'd be fine with that. It was horrible. I will fully admit <laughs> it was it was the uh, the most elementary version of of trying to be a drummer that I've ever seen anyone actually post anywhere. No. Uh, I want to thank you guys so much for taking some time and, and not just to, to take some time and talk to me about this, but for all your work, both of you on, on the documentary for taking the time and, and the great effort to put it out there. I think it's, it's just an amazing piece of art in and of itself, regardless of the subject matter uh, and the journey. I think just the, the way that you filmed it, the quality of it, the audio quality is there in every scene. There's no, uh, well, they didn't get great audio here. I mean, it's a quality piece in and of itself. And then you take the subject matter, the particular journey that we're following and all that. And I mean, it's just, it, it just, it's all the feels for me. Um, before we wrap up, Taylor, what are you working on now? <laughs> or can you tell us, I, I should ask you. Yeah. yeah, I can. Um, so I'm, my next documentary is Jimi Hendrix, The Missing Millions. Ooh, that's going to be fascinating. Yes. Another another one who I liked I, I'm making a documentary, and it's called <clears throat> "Watching Taylor Finding the Missing Jimi Hendrix." <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to see that film too. It's just Steve standing there watching. Yeah. So uh, what's uh, what's happening in your world, Steve? Oh, a lot a lot of things, a lot of things. Well, our propaganda. Um, are at the moment, you know, they've hit the uh, the coal face. They're a rich theme of writing. Mm -hmm. um, they're really, really now putting in their hours in social media. Mm -hmm. All young bands have to do today, unfortunately, or fortunately. Um, you know, we just started playing shows again. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're, 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 we've got festivals this summer. Um, two big festivals, um, some smaller shows, and writing, and hopefully we might even do some recording in June. Oh, good. And if just a, a, some of these songs, and then album in the autumn come early winter. Nice. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. I will also uh, plug another one of your artists, my friend, uh, Paul Newton, uh, the original bass player for Uriah wow. Heap, incredibly nice guy. 
I have not had a chance to read his book yet, but he finally wrote his book, Bone Structure, which That's is available awesome. on Amazon UK. And mm -hmm. uh, I am looking forward to getting a copy and reading that as well when I have a chance. Um, you've really worked with a lot of great artists over the years. Uh, we I talked about that see, when you were on before too. I went I went to see, uh, I saw, I spent a day and a night with Paul and Joan, his wife, last October in Cardiff. I went down to see Heat. Went down to see Mick and the Boys playing. All mm -hmm. obviously and Joan Kane. That was a great night, actually. Great show, really great show. Um, they did it in two sections. Mm -hmm. First part acoustic, intermission, then electric. And I was oh, was this on the fiftieth anniversary? Yeah, uh, celebrated. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. That yeah. well, that was delayed two years because of the world's yes. disease, but. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it goes yeah no awesome yeah paul's a great guy so, so that was good yeah paul's good as gold yeah good as well gold. everyone go check out this documentary lee kerr's like not on the heap it's absolutely incredible steve taylor thank you guys so much for coming on the show and, and chatting about it it's great to meet you taylor i'm really looking forward to this jimi hendrix documentary that should be fascinating and uh paul definitely keeping up with our propaganda and, and of course you and i stay in touch uh, fairly regularly uh thank you guys so much Take care. Thanks. You bet. We'll talk to you guys soon.